Martin Page, and this is my 80sography. Hello and welcome to Eatisography and part one of the My Eatisography with Renaissance man Martin Page, musician, singer, songwriter, producer and ex-footballer. I actually recorded this last year um, but I had such a backlog because I'd already got two Anatomy of a Song episodes out of Martin. Um, this one kept getting pushed back even though it's a hugely enjoyable chat and my single longest interview I've done, it was over four hours, but the sheer energy is just very infectious and um and he's an absolute gent he's a great chap especially about being a songwriter for hire in america in the 1980s so grab your cup of tea settle back and enjoy the first part of my chat with martin page part one of the interview begins now okay so before we get to 1980 a bit a bit before then so as i mentioned on, on facebook i saw originally on wikipedia it mentioned the fact that you were a trainee at southampton football club yeah, I was. You know, um, I was signed to Southampton as an associate schoolboy. I played for the Southampton schoolboys under 16s at the Dell in the national cha- in the national championships when we were playing for the, the the school team. And then I was signed to them at the age of 17 as a youth player for about a year. <clears throat> and then I went back to music. But um yeah, um, you know, I've even got pictures to prove it. But it was the it was the time when I was 16 and I was playing for uh, Hampshire schoolboys. I actually went all the way to get into England's Southern England team, playing at Bisham Abbey. With the, I didn't quite make the England schoolboys. I got in the last forty-four, I think. We played three games at the De- four, four games at the Dell as a schoolboy, and then I went to America to follow my father for a while. And then when I came back, I started playing local football. And Southampton made a commitment to me to put me in the youth team. It was actually John McGrath who was uh, the centre-half for Southampton at that point, he he came to my dad's house and said, you know, we'd like him to be an apprentice. I never signed apprentice forms. I signed just for, to be a youth player. Um, but they wanted me to sign apprentice forms. But I wanted to... I didn't think I was good enough and I wanted to go uh, and do music. Um, but, uh, yeah... You literally was, made a I, choice there between music and football. I did, Mark, actually. You know, I sort of... Um, it, as a young boy, nine nine years old to 16 I was 
very, very strong in, in Southampton. I was a very far, I'm a very tall player. So I was a, I was a striker and I was scoring 40 goals a year at 16 years old. And then so they, you know, I became captain actually of the Southampton schoolboys. And my dad just wanted me to be a footballer. So um, it was Laurie McNemone's time. Yeah, yeah. And in, and in fact, what was quite interesting, and when I was in the youth team, they, we used to go out on a Monday and play against the first team. And I remember that I'd grown up absolutely addicted to Southampton, Terry Payne, Sydenham and Ron Davis and Martin Chivers. And uh, they had me mar- marking Ron Davis in a game and, and Terry Payne was running down the wing and I couldn't quite believe it, you know, and in the first half against Ron Davis, I was holding him quite well. And I thought this is okay. <laughs> and uh, Laurie McNemone said, good work, my man. And um, I thought, well, this is a piece of cake. And uh, David Walker, who was in the team, he said, um, you're doing all right, kid. And I thought, yeah, piece of cake. Second half, Ron Davis took it a little bit more serious <laughs> and he scored four goals with his head. <laughs> and I didn't even know where he came from. You know, yeah. and I thought, oh my God, this, when they, when the, when the first team wants to turn it on, they were just playing with us. They, you can see there's a whole different league going on, but it, I, I wanted to be a soccer player really, really bad from about 12 to 16. And I peaked at about 16 to 17. And then I, I really thought, Mark, you know, I, I was around a lot of players at that time. I saw a couple of my friends go on to be professionals. Manny Andrewski got through and a guy called Walton got through. But I didn't think I would. I probably would have made it. I thought you could end up, you know, going to Scarborough or something or playing for Doncaster. Nothing, nothing bad about that. But I just thought, I don't know if I'm right for that. And around the age of 17 and 18, I started to fall in love with music because playing football for Southampton, we'd travel and I'd end up in little towns and sometimes London and I'd go to clubs and hear music. And that's when Motown and, and the Beatles had really broke. So I, I just sort of felt like, I fell, I fell in love with it. I'm a bit of an obsessive character. Football was ex, was my obsession from about nine till 17. And then music absolutely took me. Even though they were asking me to sign forms, I just told my dad, he was very upset, but I said, I don't think I'm going to be a professional footballer. I don't think I'm good enough. And my heart isn't in it. I, it was when I was younger. But it was lovely because I still follow football. I'm still a huge Southampton fan. And... Uh, when I played for Southampton Scoreboys, I scored two goals at the old Dell, you know, one with my head and one with my foot. And, I, and you never forget those things. Because <laughs> no, no, you, no. Well, you know, most, I was on the most of us can't relate to that, can we? So we, we never got to No, see no, you know, the Dell yeah. was... Uh, when I was a kid, my dad used to bring a little stool and I used to stand on it behind, at the Milton End and watch the players. And then suddenly you're out there, you know, only for Scoreboys, but I scored against Reading and I think it was against Bournemouth and... You know, you just those memories, even now as an old old guy, you just you they're they're so memorable. And of course, you know, the moments that you're there with your heroes for just a brief time around Ron Davis, you know, you you uh you just you know, it's a bit of a magical thing, but something overtook me with music. I, I did really truly believe that I wasn't gonna be I peaked and I didn't think my heart was totally in the game. I was music was beginning to captivate me, and I think I made the right decision, although you know, you still have these little dreams where Ron Davis isn't scoring four goals. And, uh... <laughs> That's just it. If he hadn't scored those four goals, if he'd taken it easy the whole day, do you ever imagine? Oh, man, what I, tell, I, I, I tell you, Mark, he was, you know, I was, I was you know, I stood next to Mark and him and I thought, he's not doing much. You know, he's just, he, mm. and of course, it, they, they warned us. They said, don't kick the first team because this is a warm up for them. And it, it yeah. went, you know, and, that, and McNemone was on the field walking around with us, just talking to us. And we were, Terry Payne was, 
telling some young kid, our fullback, we're all young. He was saying, don't you dare kick me, kid, else I'll break your leg and all this kind of stuff. And we're going, we're going, well, this is wild. And I thought, he's very quiet, Ron Davis, you know. And I'd seen him score four goals for Wales against England. I'd seen him score four at Manchester United. And I thought, hey, you know, maybe he's just, you know, no, no big deal. He didn't speak to me or anything. And then we second half, they <laughs> they just pushed just the gears. On, and it yeah. was like, bang, bang, bang. And I thought, oh my God, what the fuck happened and and he just he's such a good book he was so good in the air you know he was a fantastic header of the ball and when they wanted to they were just playing with us you know and it was a good lesson because at half time all us kids thought we were we were really doing well then in the second half when they warmed up we were mutilated badly <laughs> should probably get off football because a lot of our American listeners are not going to be like following this at they, all. they have no idea what I'm talking no, about no but no idea it's, it's interesting isn't it eh? Yeah. Have you ever did you learn anything playing football that you applied then into your musical career later? Oh, that's a great question, Mark. Absolutely everything. I, I talked about that before because I was a captain, I had a big mouth, <laughs> and I had to win people over and I had to talk a lot on the field. And 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 in music, when I came to Los Angeles and went into the studios with the musicians. I felt like I could communicate and I felt like I was brave enough to to win them over and make friends. And so football to me was huge as a, in bringing me out of myself. And I think my, when I produced acts and when I was having to uh, motivate people, I think, uh, yes, uh, as playing football and, and, and talking to people and given the that they made me a captain, you have responsibility. So I did feel, even now today, when you have to work with musicians, I feel like I'm so lucky that I had the sense of a team, how you motivate a team, because musicians, you know, are are a team. And a production of a record is really everybody working together and trying to get a result. So, yeah, football was a huge influence on the way I would communicate to people. So I guess you had an advantage over everybody in America because none of them marked Ron Davis. So you had the, <laughs> <laughs> so you had the advantage over them, didn't you? Only you, Mark, only them. you know this. What it okay. means to me. The world will know. I'll share it with the world. I can tell you, I know Ron Davis isn't alive now, but if you mentioned my name to him, he'd go, who the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> that guy that was really good in the first half when you weren't trying. Yeah, That's right. That guy yeah. that I was... I was smoking in the first half, so I wasn't really playing. But in the second half, I told, I showed him. You know, but I do. I think it's a great question, Mark. Really, you know, it's um, when you come into studios with people like Earth, Wind, and Fire, and you know Robbie Williams and and Tom Jones. You, you know, it, it's it's and, and uh, you, you if you've if you've had that uh, period of being around people close and being in a battle, which I think football is, it's a, a battle and then making a record and sometimes making a record really come to life uh, with a band. It's a battle and you all have to work well together. So I was very fortunate to be thrown in a, a young age into a little bit of a deep end. And I came out the other side of it, using it for music. Yeah. Communication, communication, teamwork. 1980, 1981, 1982. So um, what was your first big break? So as we get into 1980, where were you at in your career approaching 1980? And what was your big break into it? I'll try and make this quite quick, but I I wanted to be a bass player. I'd been across to America where my father was working with uh, British Aerospace. And while I was in America, away from schooling in England, I picked up the bass and I was learning to play funk bass because I was in South Carolina down south. So I was listening to Wilson Pickett, Brothers Johnson, Parliament, uh, Funkadelic. And so I fell in love with the bass. It was being a big, tall guy. The bass guitar just seemed to me to be the heart of music. Again, going back to football, you know, 
base to me is like a centre half in a game. You know, it's a, it's yeah. the steadfast middle of a record. So I really gravitated to the base. Came back to England and I decided to go to art college because I didn't really have a career. And that's what all musicians do, just to get the grant, just so that I could travel <laughs> and do auditions. And I joined a band in Oxford, a funk band called Cabasa. We did all covers of Average White Band, Commodores. We were a soul band. Um, and then I was spotted by a singer, who, Charlie Mullen, who was forming a band in London. Oh, before that, I, I went from Oxford into a band called Bronx, who were first called Toby in Bristol. And uh, I was st- then, then I joined this band in London. A guy had seen me playing in Tramps with my band uh, Bronx. And he said, you know, I've got a record deal. And I, I joined this band called CMV. We are, and there was all good players, very professional. And I met Brian Fairweather in that band. The band only lasted for a year. He's a Scottish guitarist who, who, who'd come down from Glasgow. We decided at that point to be songwriters. And we, te- we got a little four track together in Wilston, in London, in a flat. And we did some demos. And one of those demos was a song called Dancing in Heaven. And we took it to Jive Records, Clive Calder and Ralph Simon. And they signed us. For, uh, as producers and as songwriters and as artists, uh, all they were they were a new company. We released uh, "Dancing in Heaven," our second single, and it broke in America. Nowhere else broke in Los Angeles mainly as a dance record. We were like Ultravox. It was the time of synthesizers, the time of Thompson Twins, mm-hmm. Tom Dolby, uh, the eighties, and that was our that I still classify classify that as my, our big break because Dancing in Heaven broke as a dance record on K-Rock in Los Angeles that I had been to America before with my dad I decided that I had to follow where the success was was and I took Brian to America to LA and when we arrived in LA in the 80s everything had changed musically everybody was listening to new wave music we weren't new wave and so Dancing in Heaven became my passport it's an underground record uh, not people think it's a big hit but it was wasn't really a hit except for underground in clubs but everybody knew it into all the record companies in Los Angeles. And I done my, basically. Yes, and yeah. we were there right at that time. So every time we walked into EMI, America, every time we walked into Geffen, we said, we're Q-Phil. We're the guys you're hearing on the radio. Tom Dolby was breaking with Blinded by Science. Science! Everybody was into this new sound and everybody wanted that sound on all their artists in America. So they are very interested in me and Brian because they said, could you work with Kim Carnes? Could you work with Earth Wind Fire? Could you change the Commodores? And we all said, of course we could. Yes, um, I've marked Ron Davis. I can do anything. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it ended up that um, that record, you know, was uh, my ticket to being in LA and primarily really getting me with 
Maurice White of Earth, Wind and Fire. He'd heard the record and thought it was very, he wasn't crazy on the record, but he thought the energy was fantastic. And right. uh, my manager, who I met at that time, Diane Poncher, she worked for Earth, Wind and Fire, Ray Parker, Prince, and all the people we loved. And so she said, um, Maurice White would like to meet you. And also Bernie Taupin, who wasn't working with Elton at that time, he took an interest in in writing with me. But it's really, Mark, everybody in, in L.A. wanted to change their sound. So the timing was right. We had a, we had a, a new wave record on the, on the radio that was played every 20 minutes. Everybody loved it. was a big workout song at that time in the 80s. And so we, we came at the perfect time, Brian and myself, and the doors opened. Because we seemed like the new whiz kids. We had we knew about Fairlights. We knew about Synclavias. Our, our songs were done on synthesizers. We made a conscious, conscious effort to be the sound that was happening in London at that time. In L.A., quite as big at that time. You, you had um, Oingo Boingo. You had Mexican radio. The bands were, tr you had Talking Heads vaguely getting it together. But here we were sounding like, you know, Tom Dolby and Thompson Twins and uh, Ultravox all wrapped into one. But also Dancing in Heaven, our Orbital Bebop, was a very, very funky synthesizer song. I was very influenced by Parliament and George Clinton. So we swung. We weren't, we weren't like the normal English straight ahead mathematical European rock. We were swinging. We were doing funk with our vocals. And the Americans took to us because we had a swing to us. We weren't as icy as they might have thought most English artists were that were coming across at that time, like Soft Cell. But, we, you know, perfect timing, Mark, perfect timing. And, of course, when the A&R men, and I did my homework, I went and saw every record company in L.A., and they, they said, would you work with Kim Carnes? Would you work with this artist? Would you try and work with that artist and, we, and bring them your sound? Because we want that English sound. So uh, we did. And luckily, uh, we stayed, you know, and uh, it went from there. Talking about your question again, my breakthrough was that song, Dancing in Heaven. And funny story. You know, we were asked to do it for the British Eurovision Song Contest back in England. And there's film of us doing it, you know, and trying to be like the tubes, you know, because I didn't want to do Eurovision Song Contest. But um, for Europe, yeah. That's right. We were we yeah. a song for Europe. Yeah, we were in there on TV with Terry Wilkins. And Martin Page. They're also two members of Q Field. And the other members are Chris Richardson, Roy Ward, two dancers, Foxy and Frankie. So the stage got to be fairly well filled. Song number one, then, is performed by Q Field. It's written by Brian Fairway weather and Martin Page, Dancing in Heaven. And I, I was dressed up as an astronaut. We were crazy. We were trying to be like the tubes and parliament. And we thought, we're not going to do the Eurovision Song Contest unless we can be wild. And we did that and didn't, you know, I think we were out of 10. We were eight. We were, nobody knew what to make of us. But in America, uh, that song uh, was a ticket, was a passport to all the artists that I wanted to work with and learn from. Can I just go back briefly before we, we continue with 82? So in 1980 and 81, the first credit I can see for you is we on a slim, dusty album as old son slim dusty family album you're credited on old sunland divan is that correct or is that <laughs> i've never heard of that I don't okay know good okay you're working too hard mark okay. you're looking too hard. <laughs> i'm trying to be thorough okay <laughs> 
I've, I've saved myself 20 seconds in the edit by getting rid of that. That's good. No, that's okay. I listened to one of your shows with Hugh Padgham and you found out about the Phil Collins um, demos by um, Elvis Costello. I thought that was really fascinating. Yes, because I, I remember reading an yeah. interview that Elvis had submitted these songs and Phil Collins had rejected them. And well, he never knew yeah. why. I think, well, is there a bit of jealousy there? Because Elvis is very a very well-reviewed artist. Yes. Collins wasn't. And was that the reason? I think it was a terrific question. I had no idea about that. You know? They're good, good songs as well. They're, they're perfect for, for, for Frida. You can imagine her singing them. There's one kind of yeah. ballad and one kind of really poppy song. You think, that's that's perfect for her. But obviously, Phil's like, no, I'm not. You I'm actually not played one of the record on this album. Yeah, you played one of those demos, didn't you, on the show? Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that's pretty good Sherlock Holmes, but you're way off with me, mate. You're okay. way off. <laughs> Let's try one that I know is true, which is Tight Okay, In 81, yeah, around yep. this time, you did some work with Tight Fit. So how did that come about and what was your role there? Uh. Musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was um. Well, as I said to you before, we, uh, we signed to Jive Records in London. Yes. They were a new label, and we uh, they signed us QPhil uh, and as producers, writers, recorders. But they also could see that we were musicians, so they wanted us to be like the Chin and Chapman uh, or the Holland Dozier Holland writers for their label. Clive Calder, who went on to have huge success in America with Jive Records, was trying to build his own Motown. So their first ever release was type fit and they 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 created you know uh they got they created this band it really wasn't a band they got two model girls and a, and a model to sing and they created i think two hits and we played on some of the tracks you know we were we were the musicians that were brought in by the producers um tim Freescreen, who went on to work, work with talk talk so, you know, they and, yeah, I changed so we, from, from tight fit to talk talk. I'm telling you, mate, I'm telling you, yeah. I mean, all of us, if you think about it, you know, uh, people still on the internet think that I was in tight fit for some reason, but it was we were just the musicians around. You see, Jive Records in London at that time had signed the Flock of Seagulls and us. We were the first acts they signed, but before they broke the big bands, the bands they cared about a little bit, they wanted to have pop success, so they created this, fabricated this band called Tight fit in fact their third single was a song that brian and i wrote called secret heart it was our first ever top 40 in england it was a that's another bit of a landmark for us it wasn't huge for them it was a failure they'd had fantasy island and you know these uh, uh these kind of songs where you stick hits from the 70s or the 50s and 60s together and then they wanted to do an original song and of course jive records thought that myself and brian fair with the page we were called should write the song and tim Freescreen produced it
then the same song the monk is covered later that's right very good point there you're absolutely right they 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 recorded it on their i think it was called pooler album yeah And um, yeah, it, for us, for me and Brian, it was a success. We broke the English charts at 40, you know, but for, for, for tight fit. And unfortunately for us, they'd always used session singers on their records. But the lead singer decided on our song that he wanted to sing. Oh, no. <laughs> and that was the death knell for us, you know. And he was like, I will not carry on unless I sing this song. And so Tim Fries Green had to work as hard as he could. But, you know, it wasn't it, on the previous singles. I think everybody knows about this now. You know, they were they were fabricated singles and the, and the lead singer didn't sing them. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, we were associated with Type Fit as session musicians and as and I'm writing one of their songs. Okay, excellent. And and in 81, do you recognize the title of Relaxation Theme Gina's song? Gracious me, you do. I this is phenomenal work you do. I'm I'm a bit scared that you're living near me or something. (laughs) Just look outside your window right now. I'm waving to you right now. Can you see me? Yeah, I thought I thought that was I thought that was was a gardener, but no, it's you. Um no, yes. The reason I ask is because it was used on Shape Up and Dance with Felicity Kendall. And our That's American right. listeners and non-UK listeners won't know about Felicity Kendall. Can you explain to our non-UK listeners who Felicity yeah. Kendall was? Well, Jive Records, not only with Typefit and uh, having pop success, they also could see a way in with these st- strange records they made back then with celebrities. Yeah. And the celebrities used to talk over these tracks on how to work out and how to <laughs> calm your mind down, to lose weight, grow bigger breasts, get longer legs, whatever. And uh, they, they would take music in the background while they uh, from their own writers. And so Brian and I, they asked us to write some of this uh, noodling music in the background. And um, we, we wrote on a couple of those albums, not only just Felicity Kendall. I think there was two other albums that came out. And um, they that was one way of them saying, we're going to get royalties for you guys by, by selling these albums. It did, you know, quite well. And you have to realize, Mark, we were two songwriters in London just trying to get started and so here we were you know from just being musicians all of a sudden our tracks were being recorded in some form and going out now Gina's thing uh, Gina was a uh, a the girlfriend of Brian Fairweather my partner at that time we saw ourselves as as uh, like um Chin and Chapman like Lennon and McCartney we saw ourselves as two songwriters that would could do anything write anything any different styles whatever and it proved to be that way we were very influenced by all kinds of music you know right not only English, but we looked very much across the pond to Boscags, Toto, the Doobie Brothers. So we, so our tracks that we recorded in England for Jive in the background there are quite musical in the sense that we were playing. You know, I was playing fretless bass, and we were very aware of fusion music. We were trying to expand our horizons, but that's right. We. We were on a couple of these very strange celebrity uh, records. You know, if people bring them up, we try and hide about it and say, no, 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 we weren't involved with that. Of course not. No, we would never do that. I was tempted to uh, focus the entire interview on the Felicity Candle album. Thank you. I'm just about, oh, the phone is broken. I can't hear you. Where have you gone? (laughs) (laughs) Now be the way normally and quietly and concentrate on your spine from the 
coccyx right at the bottom of the spine, along each little vertebrae, into the small of the back and waist, along each vertebrae again, and across your shoulder blades, and then into the tension areas of the shoulders, the back, the neck, and the head. Take a deep breath in. For our non-UK listeners, Felicity Candle was an actress and like a national treasure, and every man yeah, at certain yeah. age really fancied her. She was, I still do, mate. I yeah, still do. She's adorable, isn't she? Still is. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. It doesn't do me any good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we, we, we we wanted to hang around the studio when we were doing it to see if she'd come in, but she never came in. So, uh, we, yeah, yeah, we didn't get a benefit from that, uh, you know. That's disappointing. Okay, so back it to... Was. <laughs> in the Q field, dancing in heaven. So, one question about the song for Europe: If you had won Eurovision, how do you think your career would have been different? Oh, I think it would have been it would have been crushed at a very early point. I think we were terrified. We didn't want to win because we thought they're going to throw us on a London bus and and throw us out in the streets while we have to wave at people. And if you look at the if you look at us on that show, we're taking the piss. You know, I've got an oxygen mask that I'm trying when they film me I'm <laughs> saying I'm taking drugs. You know, we were we were into the tubes. We were into the tubes, the American band that did great theatrics. So uh, when they when they begged us uh, to do Eurovision, I said, I'm only going to do it Eurovision if we can have two beautiful girls half naked with us. And we're going to be really strange because we're not really a Eurovision band. And of course, that was the time when they were trying to make it a different kind of show. So I think they chose Dancing in Heaven uh, to show that the show was going to be um, more, more modernised. I remember doing a rehearsal because you, you had to do it, uh, it live. And I remember, which is, what was his name? Um, well, what's his, who was the bloke who ran the show? Yeah, yeah. He just watched us from the side of the stage. And I think he vomited. I, think, I don't think he could understand. <laughs> <laughs> he was just he was stunned i mean we were looking at him and he was looking at us like how do i how do i introduce this what do i say <laughs> oh, different, different. Well, song number one dad's in heaven orbital bebop what what can you do for this you know and uh so we've written we, your autobiography by the way me yeah because yeah, if you I, do I've started, call it i made I've johnny started. logan vomit call it that <laughs> I've been looking for the title. You know, there I was going to call it. I was going to call it my five percent. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was going to be these <laughs> dreams, you know, and then you know that's. Yeah, no, no, I think, I think, I think Terry Wogan vomiting has more more pizzazz about oh, it. Terry I mean, Wogan, sorry, Terry Wogan, not. not I made. <laughs> I sent Terry Wogan to hospital. Yeah, I think it's great. I like that. Um, no, <laughs> but um, we we got a little bit nervous on the Eurovision because we were, I think, the first on. And the first votes came in from Scotland, and we were top. Can you uh, trouble yourself to give us the marks now from the Scots jury, please? We must, yes. Uh, song number one, we gave that 15 points. And we were like, oh, for crying out loud. There's no way we want to win this. You know, we got very nervous. And then the second one came in from somewhere like my area, Bristol, Southampton, and they gave us top points. And we were top after two rounds and we were really getting edgy. We thought, oh, no, 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 we're not. No way can we win this. We're not prepared for this. And then after that, luckily, everybody voted terrible votes for us. And we ended up second from bottom. And, you know, people get they they were filming us in the room after, you know, while, while they're doing the voting. And when we were top, you can see the band is terrified. We're like, oh, no, 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 no. 
And then when, when we went bottom, you can see we're all just jumping up and down and going, great, <laughs> great, we're lost. We lost. We haven't got to get on a red bus and go through town. So we were we, we did it the way we wanted to do it. And I only recently, when I well, quite recently, when I was working with Robbie Williams, he said his girlfriend's favourite song before he married her in L.A. was Dancing in Heaven. And then I said to him, oh, yeah, well, we, we did Eurovision as well. And Robbie said, oh, that's a fantastic show. That's really important to do that. You must be so honoured. And I thought, it's changed. It's a different kind of feeling for the Eurovision Song Contest now, you know? You should write a song with him and get him to do it. Well, we, we have. I've, he's recorded two of my songs. No, um, Eurovision. Oh, that's true. I never thought yeah. about that. You know, I was telling him that, sort of expecting him to go, oh, my God, you poor sod. Yeah, yeah. And he was going, oh, no, it's, it's, it's a big thing, Eurovision. And I thought, well, it must have changed from the day when we did it because um, it was a bit laughable when we did it. It was a bit old-stayed and, and silly. And in fact, two years after that, or three years after that, we got into it again with another song called The First Time that we'd written, me and Brian and I had written. We got and we had certificates for it, and they said it's going to be in the show, but we'd written it with an American writer, John Lind, um, who works for Earth, Wind & Fire. And so they uh, threw us out because you're not allowed to have American writers. And Would you, we felt grateful for that as well. Else to perform. Yes, yeah. And we were grateful that we we didn't have to go there again. So, um, But that's the story of Dancing in Heaven. Of course, in America... Mark, they people when you uh, even where I live here in Encino in California, when I talk to people and I and I mention to them the songs I've written and I say, oh, you know, song like Dancing in Heaven and they sing it to me. It's it was such a big it was such a big club record in Los Angeles. It's hard, hard for anybody to understand. In England, it, it didn't mean a thing. I mean, we it, it, we weren't known. But in L.A., that record is is still played as a kind and it's in movies still. They see it as a. A big 80s song, you know, it was in a big film, uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Um, so it, it broke quite big underground in America, but in England and Europe, you know, but not, not a thing, not, a, not an iota. But it, it got me over to the States. That was a big thing. 1983. So in 1983, you're now doing songs for other artists. So at this point, are you stopping thinking of yourself as like a, an artist yourself, like a singer-songwriter in a band and more as a songwriter for hire? Or are you kind of still thinking you're both? Well, um, head, head that, that's a very good question. Um, more, more, more to uh, thinking. Um, I'm a writer because um, we didn't have a very good recording contract with Jive Records, and I could see that when I was working here in America with the writers I worshipped. You know, I was with the Earth, Wind, and Fire writers. I was with the Quincy Jones people, people I'd grown up with, loving. I loved American music as a, a young boy, so I thought I've got to concentrate on songwriting, and so did Brian. Brian, we, so we, we, our manager Diane Poncher negotiated us out of our record deal, and so we concentrated on being songwriters solely although we did produce a pretty uh, strong band over here called bone symphony which were very 80s oriented
we, we thought, no, let's put the band on rest, you know, put it to one side. And so we we were doing an apprenticeship, you know. We were writing with, the, with producers and writers we could only dream about. You know, we were constantly, and this was a time in the 80s, Mark, where L.A. was songwriter heaven. I mean, everybody was collaborating. Everything was about the song. The song was God. You know, if you had the song, you were going to have success. So we walked into many of these offices and played our demos that we'd made back in England, even uh, even in the 24 track studio with Jive Records. We were making demos that sounded American and we were playing these demos and saying, yes, we're Q-Feel. You know us as Dancing in Heaven. But listen, this sounds like Neil Diamond. This sounds like the Doobie Brothers. This sounds like Boss Gags. And they they fell in love with us because they thought we were a bit of all-rounders. But we did put our band on hold. But the funny thing about this is the song, first two songs that I wrote with Bernie Taupin, We Built This City and These Dreams, they were demoed in the way that I thought my band might do them if my songwriting career doesn't take off. So the demo of We Built the City and the demo of These Dreams was really written with my band in mind. But like, if, if nobody cuts this... We're going to go back and be a band and we're going to do We Built the City like you feel. And you can hear it. You yeah. can hear it dancing in heaven and you can hear the demo of We Built the City and you get a feeling like, ah, that could be the band. That could be the same band. Definitely, has a very early '80s feel to it. So, like, yes, we'll get to that later. Yeah. The specifics of that, but so really, yeah. you were thinking you were writing for potentially other artists, but also it could be for you, kind of thing. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely right. But, you know, in the back of my mind was it, you know, uh, and also we got to say here, Mark, that you know the demos sounding like that they inspired. Bernie Taupin, because everybody wanted to move into the future. Yeah. Even Bernie said when he heard We Built This City, he goes, oh, this is this is Bernie Taupin moving into the future. So my demos, the, the biggest success I had around that time, did sound very synthesizer and new wave oriented. And it was quite surprising because you would think um, if you're, say, going to play a song to uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, you're going to do a demo that sounds like Earth, Wind & Fire. Well, I, I never did that. I used to think, what would excite... Uh, an artist what would be the next stage for them they probably would want to sound like tom dolby's blinded by science they're probably turned on that way so magnetic the first song i wrote for earth wind and fire again it sounds like q feel it sounds very very ultra rock And they were attracted to that. And, of course, Kim Carnes did a song of uh, ours called Invisible Hands, our first American top 40. And that, the demo of that, is incredibly new new wave. You know, you, you could be listening to the Thompson Twins. Yeah. 
that was great we chorus, were, that song. Great chorus. Yeah, thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah. thank you. We, we, we were very influenced by Tom Dolby's um, Golden Age of Wireless. We thought that was a fantastic record. And uh, that influenced me a great deal in my songwriting and how I demoed my songs. You know, from um, one of those submarines, you know, Wind Power. And uh, that whole album to me is a Sergeant Pepper of new wave music. So in a way, we were... I, we, I, I thought if Tom Dobby was in Los Angeles and he was writing with these people, he'd be doing demos like this. And he's not. He's at somewhere else. He has got another career. So we were settled in L.A. and we were the new new wave boys. So even though you're working with Bernie Taupin, who's used to Elton's demos just at the piano, I was bringing songs to Bernie, you know, like We Built This City, These Dreams, that sounded totally different to what Elton was writing. And then you have to understand, Mark, I think it's hard for people to understand, but at that time, early 80s in America, that was the sound that everybody wanted, you know, and everybody was scared of it too. You know, Joni Mitchell, The Eagles, they weren't sure what was going on. They were like, who are these synthesizer boys with the drum machines? This is horrible. You know, uh, you need, they're not, it, they're, this is all, all done by one man. It's all done by two people. So we were a little bit like uh, renegades in town playing, using drum machines, which no Americans really were using of any consistency. So there was a twofold thing, you know, artists, some artists wanted to work with us because they were entranced by it. We have to remember that um, Kim Carnes had done Betty Davis Eyes. She was one of the few, artists that looked towards the Europe. And so she gravitated to us. But, you know, if you went to sit with Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, they probably would have vomited if we brought a drum machine in, you know. So some of the people in Laurel Canyon are like, oh, my God, what's ch- it's, it's, it's changing. It's the 80s. And we don't like these kids coming in with their synthesizers and uh, not really singing. And of course, it was a it was a period of romance, romance in the music. You know, you're listening to Human League. This is a different kind of music. You can imagine, you know, some of these artists were intimidated by that sound and thought it wasn't real music. It was difficult. If you, Joni Mitchell, trying to work with Tom Dolby, it didn't work out. People, they were trying to get me to work with Graham Nash and Graham Nash was wanted to, but was a bit suspicious of technology. So in one way, we came at the perfect time because we were a bit of a revolution and some people gravitated to it and some people backed away from it. But if you look at all the mainstay artists of that time, and your show is about the 80s, every artist in America was trying to change its sound. Some were successful, some weren't. You know, you'd have Earth, Wind & Fire trying to change their sound. The Commodores trying to change their sound. Stevie Wonder trying to change their sound. Uh, Paul McCartney even, Toto. Everybody knew that the 80s was an an absolute uh, revolution in technology and in the studios. And um, a lot of these older artists either had to get get on board or not. And, of course, we were the kids that had grown up with it, gravitated to it at the perfect time, and we knew how to do it. And I also, you know, I'm, I'm maybe going off on a tangent here, but the music, as I just said to you, had a romance in it, uh, the 80s. If you look at some of these, the, some of the biggest hits, Vienna, Human League, even what uh, In the Air Tonight, Phil Collins, you know there's a kind of uh, English romance happening about it and nostalgia and very visual. And so Kick Map for America, it was a big, big sea change, big sea change. It was like a second British invasion, wasn't there, in the 80s? Absolutely, absolutely. Even now, even now, Mark, I don't know if you come over to the States, but even on the radio now, the radio shows like to say, this is our 80s day. And 80s, you know, you don't really hear, you know, 2008 
uh, year. You don't hear about the 90s as much, but the 80s have something very, very powerful. And a lot of the pop artists now that are having huge success, even in hip hop and everything, they're leaning on the 80s. It's yeah. a huge... Young huge... people love the 80s. They, they want to live in the 80s. You see it all the time. Yes. They talk about Yes, it. yes. So with Earth, Wind and Fire, then, so you, uh, you co-wrote five songs on Electric Universe. So it's quite interesting you're saying, like, you weren't tailing the demos to try and write Earth, Wind and Fire style songs right it was morris white yes. kind of like and what was the process for actually writing songs with him then were you like pre- presenting them well he, he was you know i was a, a amazing thing i was a huge huge fan of earth wind and fire as a kid and then luckily when i came to la i met with my manager diane poncher she was put on to me by somebody from uh the studios in london i said i'm going to i uh, said to the lady who ran the studio in london in uh, in wilston um i said i'm going to america and she said well if you go to america you have to go and see my friend diane poncher stop on by and that's what happened i was in uh in london before i came to uh la at that time working with reckless eric believe it or not brian brian and fairweather and myself had been roped in by stiff records and jive records to write for reckless eric we wrote six really great songs with reckless and we were about to go in the studio to do them when he just bottled it and didn't want to finish the album it was too slick for him so i thought hey brian let's go to america and uh this lady said when you go to la her name was joyce and she was a studio manager he said you got to meet my friend knocked on the door diane poncher comes to the door lo and behold she's the manager uh uh with uh cavallo Ruffalo Farnolia, huge management company. And lo and behold, she's working and handling songwriters and artists that we worship. And we're talking about Little Feet, Weather Report, Earth, Wind and Fire, Prince, who she was helping, Ray Parker, who she was very, very close to, who led to me doing Ghostbusters, yeah. and um, Earth, Wind and Fire. She put me and Brian up in her house and I started playing her our demos. And she said, these are, I've got, you have so much potential, you guys. Brian went back to Scotland. He had to do something. I stayed. And she said, I want you to meet Maurice White. And she played some of my demos to Maurice White. And he said, I'm quite interested in this kid. Um, have him come and meet me. Of course, it's, this is all unreal to me. It's, it's like absolutely everything's happening incredibly fast. Not only are all these American artists cutting my songs, I'm about to have a meeting with Maurice White in Westlake <laughs> Studios. And I just got on with him. He was a, he's, a, he's one of my um, one of my mo- one of the most special people I've ever met. He was open to new ideas all the time. And so I sat with him in this studio and he said, um, you know, I'm looking to do a new album. And I like the sound of your dancing in heaven. I like the sound of what's happening in technology. And I said, yeah. And uh, the interesting thing about that is he was very spiritual man, Mark. And so. We got on talking about UFOs and other worlds and stuff. And my father worked for British Aerospace and he'd, he'd trained pilots and astronauts that had seen UFOs. So I, and Maurice, is, as you can see by Earth, Wind and Fire, they're very much into the pyramids and otherworldly things. And so we had a long oh, conversation. Let's, let's, let's stop there a second. So, so yeah. your, your dad had experience with pilots that had seen UFOs. Yes. Yes, my dad. My dad worked for British Raytheon. He came across with the Harrier jump jet. He was one of the people that was involved in the selling the Harrier jump jet to the American Marines. That's why I was always down in the air bases as a kid in South Carolina and down south, where they were training astronauts on the Harrier jump jet. And so my dad was in aviation all through his life. And of course, I used to talk. My dad used to train the pilots, and and uh, they would often come off and talk to him about it and say, you know, we saw another one, we saw another bogey, we saw another Foo Fighter, you know. And so I used to talk to my dad about it, and he said, there's obviously something there because he trained these pilots, you know, and and they were real. He was next to them all the time. So 
I talked talk to Maurice about that because Maurice is very much into ufology. And, and we connected. And, uh, you know, and of course, my song, Dancing in Heaven, Orbital Bebop, there's very much a uh, otherworldly space thing going on. And I talked to him more about that than music. And he said, go away and write a song a single for our new album. And so I, I, I'll do my best. He was a great man. He, we had a lot, a lot in common, which is humour. You know, I, I like to laugh. And he, everybody I've worked with, I think one of the things that I think musicians need is humour because that will break the ice of nerves, whatever. So we got on very well. I left, went back to Diane's flat. I bought a little Fostex 8-track, uh, borrowed a Jupiter 8 keyboard, and I wrote the song Magnetic. And I sent it to him on a cassette. And he called me up and said, this is going to be our next single. Come into the studio and teach it to the band. I nearly fainted and I had another pair of trousers strapped on, but that was like, that was the beginning of it. And then I stayed with Earth, Wind & Fire through the Electric Universe album to Maurice White's solo album. And he took me on to work with Barbara Streisand. 1984. Whenever I do this, yeah. my research on a, on, a, on a guest. I'm moving at a tremendous pace, Mike. You've got to keep up. Come on. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm ahead of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, ready, I'm ready for this one. 1984. So there's always one song I discover that I fall in love with. And for me, it was Time Machine, which is basically oh. a secret heart, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. That's yes. very, very, very perceptive of you. But yes. It's um, a brilliant song. And I, I, what I couldn't believe you. was it wasn't a hit single because it wasn't a single at all. That's right, Mark. Yeah, Why was I mean, this not it, a single? This would have been an absolute smash. Yeah, but we found that too. And so did Maurice. I mean, the story of that is that Maurice called me up and Brian and he said he was going to produce Barbara Streisand. He was moving a little bit away from Earth, Wind and & Fire, and he said, I want, I want you guys to write some songs with me for Barbara Streisand. And he set us up in the complex studios in L.A. with a couple of keyboards, and we wrote four songs, and one of them became Time Machine. Now, I always thought that Secret Heart was a really, really great chord progression and melodically had a lot going for it. And, of course, we didn't have a hit with Time Fit, and I just felt that harmonically there was something in there I could, I could develop again. So I said to Brian, let's revamp this and think of it in a different way. And so you're absolutely right. We changed some chords. We changed some melodies. Maurice got involved. He thought it was a fantastic song because it had so much drama in it. And it was to us, it was like the, the brother, the sister of Secret Heart moved into another place. And I rewrote the lyrics. So I thought about Barbara Streisand and her life, you know, um, that she'd seen so much and that uh, your life is a time machine. So, yeah, and it was put, I think it was put third on side one. Usually when you're on side third place on a single, on an album, it usually is pointing to say that's going to be one of the singles. Um, but it wasn't. And I, I agree with you. I'm very, I think musically, and the way Maurice produced it uh, was, was really quite beautiful.
funny story about that is that I had to go to Barbara Streisand's house with Maurice and run the song past her because she, uh, because she had to really feel like the, the song was right for her, even though she liked it. And she and she came in a room and she said, I'm not sure about this time machine. I was like, oh, no, we're <laughs> going to lose the cup. And she said, I don't really know what it means. And I went into a bit of a panic. I thought, oh, well, what shall I do? And Maurice looked at me and so I got up and sat next to her and I said, it's about your life, Barbara. I mean, you are yourself a time machine. You are a woman that has gone through life and you've made your own way. And she just stared at me for a few seconds like uh, like I was mad. And she said, I like it. I love that. I thought, <laughs> oh, great. And we just about got it. And she sort of said, I get the concept now. Because it is a strange title, Time Machine for Barbara Streisand. And, of course, she just had come off of the album with Barry Gibb. And yes. so she was looking for rhythmic producers like Murray White. And so... Um, I was thrilled that she cut the track. And in fact, our publishers back in England, they just didn't believe that at that time we were getting cuts with Barbara Streisand, Earth, Wind and Fire and Neil Diamond. They just didn't know what had happened. They couldn't believe that these two kids that they put on, you know, uh, Felicity Kendall's album. <laughs> was, <laughs> I think there's a definite link to Felicity Kendall and Barbara Streisand. I think there's a definite I know, I know, I know. It's, it's, that's, that's the dichotomy of it all, you know. Gap, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, you know, and I think what happened really is because we were having success as songwriters, Mark, when we had to get off the record label, my manager, Diane Poncha, said to the rec said to Jive Records, if you let them go as artists, we'll let you have them as songwriters. So very lucky that we were having success oh, well, as songwriters. Yeah, we, we used one success against uh, to, to get ourselves free. Yeah. So when you mentioned the, like, the pep talk you gave Barbara Streisand, is there part, when you're a songwriter for hire, have you got to be a bit of a salesman as well? Oh, oh, yeah. You've got to be a politician. You've got to, yeah. you've got to weave, you know, you've got to be, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you've, got to, you've got to have that uh, absolute commitment. You've got to have that absolute belief in the song. And you need to want the song. You know, I'm, I worked a couple of times with Diane Warren and I became friendly with her, you know, and, and she's even as, as bad as me. You know, the, the key is that you really want to see your songs get recorded. The biggest thing in the world for musicians is the song. And I realized early on, you know, being a pretty good musician, but here... When you come into a Los Angeles to get in the studios with Stanley Clark, you know, uh, John Robinson and all the greatest musicians we were with in the studio, Toto, we would only be in there if we had written the right song. And I realized that the song was what allowed me to get all go through the doors. It, it, the song was that was the treasure for everybody. And, you know, you, you can't be half hearted about it, you know, especially in America. Americans are you, you could you could be a mass murderer in Los Angeles, but if you had the right song, they'd say, "Oh, I don't care. You, you've killed three hundred people. That song's great. Come on in." So you know that well, was what America did a Charles Manson song, didn't they? So that's right. You know, yeah. I mean, if Charles Manson had written a hit, I don't know if he'd be in jail. So it's it, <laughs> it all it all got down to, and I was getting such feedback, you know, and I lived for it. I never stopped. I did a hundred, I did, I worked all day and all night, and I had my house. I put a twenty-four track studio in my garage. Uh, where I am now, I did all my recording here and had all the bands come to me here. And it, and, uh, it was nonstop. And I mean, I was living the dream. I love music. My mother and father used to say to me, you know, you're an obsessive character. You want to be a DJ. You want to be a tennis player. You want to be a soccer player. But you give it all in. You, you don't do the same with music. But I've never had music captivated me and this kept me still focused on it and learning to this point, which my parents never thought it would. So the, the song to me is golden and um, it was treasure. So I would, all my, I was 
I pride myself on the demos being really, really strong, like little little, uh, little records. And so whenever I would get with an artist, I'd play them demos that they'd even say to me, that sounds finished. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing it just to really show you that it, it, it could be a hit and it could be uh, really, really strong. And I saw myself a little bit like a Trevor Horn kind of character where I could do lots of little things. Uh, I could even sing to a reasonable degree to show them what they could do. But then again, you're, I was in the studios with the greatest singers you could be with. Paul Young, you know, uh, Peter Cox from Go West. Again, Philip Bailey, Maurice White. Uh, the, uh, these singers... And Tom Jones, you know, they, they, uh, and Alton was singing with Bernie. It's it's like the, the special thing for my life that brought all these dreams around me was the song. And you had to sell the song well. You know, you have to be a bit of a politician. You want people to like you. And being an English songwriter in L.A., it worked in my favor that I wanted to be warm with people. So I had I got my house here with some, somebody wanted to work with me. We'd have a cup of tea. I'd become a member of the band. We would talk. We would, it wasn't it wasn't scientific or mechanical. I prided myself on making people feel comfortable, have a laugh, have a giggle, then get down to it. And also, I, I'm not saying this through ego, but I had such a knowledge of everybody's careers. I knew everybody I worked with, what they'd done before. I knew their style. I did prep before I worked with any band. I knew more about the band than themselves sometimes. I knew all their albums. I was an avid record collector. Uh, I was obsessed with every artist so uh, and every record that any label put out. And so if I met with, even with A&R men, I would be telling them the artists they had that could do my song. Right. And I knew who they, were, who they had, and I knew what, what they were strong for. I knew if you went to Planet Records, you're going to be dealing with the Pointer Sisters and Richard Perry and the kind of records they were putting out. I knew if you went to Geffen, you're talking about a deeper level of working with Wang Chung or Robbie Robertson, and that would be touching on Daniel Lamoir and Bob Bob Dylan. So having that knowledge, even when you meet A&R men in the offices, they know they've come up against somebody who's in, who's uh, living it and is full of it. We were lucky, Brian and I, because we were we, we were best friends and we delivered. You know, after all this selling and all this political work, <laughs> if you put a cassette in and it sounds like crap, you're not going to it's not going to work. So we believed in what we had and we knew we had something. We knew we were on the cusp of being able to also work with any artist. The biggest thing for me, where my success came from, was you could put me with Josh Groban. I could do classical. You could put me with Robbie Williams, and I would understand where he was coming from. You could put me with Peter Gabriel and Robbie Robertson. Now, that's a huge, huge swathe of styles. And that's because I grew up on records and singles and playing along to them and knowing The Who, and knowing Genesis, and knowing Jethro Tull, and knowing Rush, and knowing Talking Heads. I was infatuated by it, obsessive character. And it worked for me when I had to go into offices and talk to people like I'm talking to you now. Enthusiasm. Uh, enthusiasm. People yeah. believe in that enthusiasm. They can see you're going to work, work for it, and they can see that you live it. Yeah, you, <laughs> it's a long answer to your question, but you've got to be a politician, and you've got to be able to be liked. If you're going to work with somebody and open your soul uh, to write with people, which is a very nerve-wracking situation, I, I wouldn't let anybody work write with me unless I'd had three weeks prep. I'd, Diane, my manager, would keep people away from me. And I'd say, let me sit for three weeks on my own and prepare ideas. So, for instance, every, everything, every hit I've had, I've done preparation for. When Go West came to me, I'd already written a lot of King Wishful Thinking and Faithful uh, concept of it. So I can't imagine the pain of sitting in a room picking your nose and just saying, 
you know, how's the weather out there and doing nothing or jamming, jamming and getting nowhere is something that I think is the worst thing in the world. I always me- remember, I say that you've got songwriters are probably listening as well, that I think they relate to this. When you play a song to an A&R man in a room, you think it's up-tempo, but when you play it to them in a room, it sounds so slow because your, <laughs> heart, your heart is wanting to make it sound brilliant. You're, and you're going, is there something wrong with the CD player? It's much faster than that. So, yeah, it's, it's such an emotional thing. When you collaborate with somebody, you have to open up hugely and you have to trust their strengths and they have to trust yours. So, again, you've got to go back to that football thing, mate. You know, if you're playing in a football team, you've got to make friends with the players if you can. And it's the same with with writing with somebody. You gotta you gotta be on the same wavelength. Basically, everything links to Southampton FC, doesn't it? It all comes back just to the Dow, doesn't it? Well, I think it really comes back yeah. to Ron Davis to tell you the truth. Ron Davis, yeah. Ron Davis. To tell you. I think that's probably going to so be your my second book. career. We well, have well, we built got... this city because of Ron Davis. Well, I, I yeah. think I think there's Maybe two biographies. There's two biographies there, isn't there? You know, <laughs> I made Terry Wogan vomit, right? Volume and Ron one. Davis scored four goals against me in two minutes. So I think there's two books. Okay, that's volume one. Volume two is to tell you what. <laughs> two volumes. This is fantastic. I want my 5% now, okay? Actually, two and a half percent. You can't I, 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 the phone is breaking up again. Oh, we have to do oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes to money. Okay. The point is that Time Machine is a brilliant track, so people should check thank it you, out. Thank you, thank so. you, Mark. I really appreciate that. You're one of the few people that looked into that and has seen that it's... It's, it's uh, one of those 80s songs that's like, oh, yeah, it's like, like yeah. Woman in Love is or Guilty. It's like, it's, oh, that's like a huge hit she had. Yeah, it's brilliant. Okay, brilliant. so um, also in 84, Little Matter of Ghostbusters... So um, what was the initial contact? What was the first word you had about this project? Well, we, uh, Brian and I had only been in Los Angeles for about two weeks. We were here as songwriters touting our demos. We'd been thrown into Diane Poncher's house, the manager uh, who worked with Ray Parker. And we were playing her the demos and she just said, you know, not only do I want um, Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire to meet you two guys, I think you should meet Ray Parker. And we said, that would be brilliant because we love Ray Parker. I loved radio, Jack and Jill and all those songs. I loved them. Now, why do you I, I knew that Ray Parker was, a, you know, one of those great guitarists, session guitarists that played with Stevie Wonder, etc. And we were a bit overawed, you know. And she said, "Well, look, he's got a studio in the Valley, San Fernando Valley, called America American Studios." And uh, she said, "Go and see him." He said, he, "You know, he's just go and go to the studio. I've told him you're going to pop in and go now." <laughs> Me and Brian, we never went without our, our equipment ever. And we didn't have a car, but we hired this thing called Pyrorec in, in America at that time in the 80s. You could just go to this place for very not much money. You could hire a wreck of a car that just about drove and you could hire it for a week. And we all we cared about was that the radio worked on it. So we picked up <laughs> the best Pyrorec that had a good radio. And we drove into the valley down Lancashire Avenue to and we found Ray Parker's studio. Knocked on the door, and right there was Ray Parker. And he was such a laid-back, easygoing, warm guy. And, of course, we're going, hey, man, we're real fans of you, you know, Diane. And he said, yeah, Diane told me about you guys, you know, and you're the guys who got Dancing in Heaven on the radio. I like that. And I said, yeah, that's us. And uh, we just really got on with him again. I said, Brian plays guitars, keyboards and sings. I play bass, keyboards, guitar and sing. We do all that stuff. And he was fascinated. And uh, he took us into his studio. He had an engineer there. 
And he played us some of his radio tracks that he was working on. And we thought this would have never happened in London. You know, it can only happen in America where everything is so open and easy going. And uh, he's fascinated by our humour. He's laughing. And we're still friends now. I was at Ray's house about uh, three months ago. He just played on a track of mine. We're sat there. All of a sudden, he said, um, so this new technology that's going on, tell me about it. So we had a long conversation with him about Synclavia's Fairlights. And he said, come into my office. And we went to his office and he played Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. He said, that sounds great to me. And I said, yeah, it's it's, it's Trevor Hornwood. Yes, it's and, and we And he said, how did they get those sounds so we, and the samples? And we started talking to him about that. And he said, I'm really into this kind of new um, 80s sound. And we have to remember Ray, you know, as a even though he's a soul uh, artist, his records, you know, with radio were very white oriented pop R&B. He had a real understanding of white pop because Jack and Jill, they're just great white pop songs. Anyway, he said, um, I want to play you something. So he took us back into the studio and he played the first raw version of Ghostbusters. We didn't had no title. We didn't know what it was. All we heard was the bass line and the drums. And uh, and then there was um, every now and again, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! Oh, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! What the hell is that? We didn't even know if we liked it. We thought, what is that? You know, what was there lyrics on? with it or was it just, who are you going to call? No, he hadn't, sung, he hadn't sung on it at all. He no. hadn't sung on it at all. Just a boom, 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 boom. Yeah, the, the bass. And then, you know, who are you going to call? And, we, and I said, we didn't really like it. We were like, oh, we really want to play on something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, we were like, what do we say? And he goes, I want you guys to play on this. He said, because your sound of Q feel and your weirdness and your strangeness. He said, I just want you to add to this. And he said it's a film song i'm doing and it's called ghostbusters and we said oh okay and we weren't really enthused because we thought he's just throwing us on something which is a throwaway anyway he goes which one of you plays guitar i said brian does he goes have you got your guitar and brian says yeah it's in the car so he goes i want you to play guitar and he said you're the keyboardist i said yeah because he's got a keyboard i said well i've got in my car and this is very good for everybody now a casio 101 one of the first synthesizers i've ever bought I'd even get a power supply for it in America, and I brought it across. It's really cheap. And I said, I've got that in the back of the car. He goes, well, bring them in, and I'm going to leave you guys alone with it. And he said, and do what you want to do. But I must say to you, he did take us into this into his office again, and he played us I Want a New Drug by Huey Lewis. And when he went, you hear that, how rocky it is, and how... Brian, can you give me a bit of that on the guitar? He said, but also, Martin, I want you to be weird with your keyboards because this is about... Ghostbusters, and we didn't know what the F Ghostbusters meant. We had no idea what it meant. We had, you know, to us it sounded stupid, but we were we, we were with Ray Parker. And so we said, okay. And he goes, look, I'm going to go away for lunch. I'm going to leave you two. I trust you. Do what you want to do on this track. And there was a bass line, and there was a drum machine, and a little teeny bit of keyboards from Ray. Like, I think he had a cork keyboard in, this, in, in, in there. And this chant, you know, Ghostbusters. So um, Brian and got his guitar out, and he started to play the guitar riff. Because it's a normal, you know, like an eight-bar uh, groove. It's a rock song. What Ray had programmed was a Lynn drum machine. It was a really great tempo. So we started to play with the track. And so we filled the tracks up. I did all the, you know, a lot, a lot of little keyboard parts and, and Brian did most of the rock guitar. That's how it started. And we didn't think much of it at all. Ray came in after his long lunch, which is about three hours. And he said, 
I love what you guys have done. But we thought it was, a, to be honest with you, a pile of crap. We thought this is just <laughs> a, a, a four four chord track. You know, it's nothing. It's not funky. It's nothing. You know, we've made friends with the Ray. We were a little bit bemused by it, but we were, but we made great friends with the Ray. And literally within two weeks, it was number one. And look at it. You know what? Ray's a genius because he knew what he was doing and he knew what we could do. And he, he said to us after, uh, uh, he said, I really trusted these two lads. I could tell that they were going to put their hearts into it and I needed that kind of colour. And we didn't feel like we'd contributed much at all. You know, I was wiggling away there and adding soft cell notes and string lines and little things, you know, watching MTV. And and there it was, you know, him him in the video. And we're going, that's your guitar, Brian. That's your Casio page. That's your keyboard line. And it's number one. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> but now, if I, if you, every Halloween, that becomes the, the record. It's huge. I mean, he, you know, you, I went to when I went to Ray Parker's house, you hit his doorbell and, and it goes, Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. His doorbell. <laughs> of course, it does. Yeah, <laughs> it does. That record did everything for him. That record just never stopped. It's it's massive. It's just a massive record, you know. And it was a we were in the studio for three hours and he told me that he did it over two days. So Ray was a very open hearted man. He took a chance on us. He took a chance on us. For more on Ghostbusters, check out episode 27, which is an anatomy of a song episode on Ghostbusters. I hear it likes the girls. Thank you. Paige Turners. Okay, your, your favourites of the 80s. So you ready for this? Oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Your, your favourite film of the 80s. I think, again, we're talking about ghosts, but I, I think uh, Poltergeist. They're here. And um, I like The Shining, big time. Here's Johnny. I believe that was the 80s. Might, yeah. yeah, so uh, The Shining hit me big time. I remember that. And I thought uh, Spielberg with Poltergeist. There's also, I've got to just mention it. There was, I saw on TV recently, I think the Army of Darkness with this Bruce Campbell. And it was really weird and crazy. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. Um, so... For some yeah. reason, I'm just thinking that everything I'm saying is to do with um, the uh, phenomenal world, the ghosts yeah, and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. everything's connected, eh? Yeah, yeah, weird, weird. All right, favorite TV series or program of the 80s? Um, I liked because I again we're into space and my dad and everything. I liked the uh, um, I liked Cosmos, it was a personal journey of a uh, Carl Sagan. I used to always watch that. Even though I was writing musical food, I used to like that uh, Cosmos where he's in the sp- he's talking about the universe. The size and age of the cosmos are beyond ordinary human understanding. Lost somewhere between immensity and eternity is our tiny planetary home, the Earth. For the first time, we have the power to decide the fate of our planet and ourselves. This is a time of great danger, but our species is young and curious and brave. It shows much promise. In the last few millennia, we have made the most astonishing and unexpected discoveries about the cosmos and our place within it. I believe our future depends powerfully on how well we understand this cosmos in which we float like a mote of dust in the morning sky. And also, I was obsessed with MTV because I was listening to what was happening at that time, yeah. So how often would you see a video you were related to on MTV? Would it be every day you'd see something of yours or would it be most days? Or um, No, I don't think it was every day. I think um, 
there were periods when, you know, with, of course, we built the city, wore everybody out. So we built the city was, I, you know, I just saw it, it was, it was on all the time. And uh, people have complained about it over the years because it was, that's all that was on. You know, if my mum would just say to me, because she was over, she said, that's a song you wrote, right? And she said, it's everywhere on all, all the TV. So, you know, These Dreams was a big one. Uh, King Wishful Thinking. Yeah. So I suppose, I suppose through that period, I, I, I would see my songs on MTV most every week two or three times yeah uh favorite book of the 80s uh i'd have to say again carl sagan's uh, sagan's contact i enjoyed that book contact yeah it really and I, I just found that it it got me out of my world of just being in a studio because i was always in the studio non-stop so uh, when, when that when his tv show was on you know cosmos and then his book I, I found him to be you know especially a spiritual man as well so i remember that book i've still got it yeah the first pulses in the train of radio waves insinuated themselves through the atmosphere and clouds, struck the landscape and were partially reflected back to space. As the earth turned beneath them, successive pulses arrived, engulfing not just this one planet, but the entire system. Very little of the energy was intercepted by any of the worlds. Most of it passed effortlessly onward as the yellow star and its attendant worlds plunged into the inky dark. Okay, best LP of the 80s not involved. That's a very, very hard, ridiculously hard question because when I thought about, when I think about that, the 80s for me, the albums were phenomenal. So I walk across the rooftops by Blue Nile, the Scottish band. I loved, as I said before, the Golden Age of Wireless by Tom Dolby. Uh, I probably have to say is, you know, I, I want to mention not just one there. I thought um, the tubes, the completion backward theory, uh, I, I loved that a lot. And most of what Peter Gabriel did through that period, all his albums in the 80s, I was listening to. So that's a really tough question because this pick one would almost be impossible. Yeah, I can imagine so would have been a big influence on you having listened to, like, especially like your 90s stuff. Yes, yes, yes. In your and then you've made me think then, I, I don't know if it was the 80s, but Talk Talk made a few really phenomenal records as well. Although I was writing pop music, I was very intrigued by the people like Prefab Sprout, uh, like Cocktoo Twins, like the Blue Nile, who were stretching uh, music into different di dimensions at that time and were also still touching technology. I mean, all those records we just mentioned, I just mentioned to you, it's the revolutions happening in the studios. You know, the, the sound of records is changing in the 80s. That's the thing. OK, the best live event attended in the 80s. That's easy. I saw Peter Gabriel at the Greek Theatre in Los Angeles when he was shocked the monkey time. That was fantastic. Yeah. And the song you wish you had written. I'd always, uh, I was wished I'd written Every Breath You Take by <laughs> The Police, by Sting. I, I still think that's a perennial song and uh, its simplicity, I wish I'd written that song. 
Rehab's great song. It's amazing often the best songs are the most simplest, aren't they? Because absolutely, absolutely. Mike. Something written yeah, yeah, true. Very true. You know, something something organic happens and it and it communicates to everybody because of its simplicity. And, and Maurice White of Earth, Wind of Fire said to me, music and songs are based in folk. You know, the best the best folk, folk and gospel. You know, it's, you, even though we may hear tech commercial songs and really well flushed out, when the greatest songs are brought down to what is purely uh, simplistic folk and folklore and, and gospel. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. That is the end of part one of the interview. Uh, so that was part one of the interview with Martin. Thank you to Martin and Diane Poncher, his manager, for arranging it. Uh, you can find Martin on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, under Martin Page or Martin Page Music. He also has a website and a podcast, Radio Owl's Nest, which I think I'll talk about more in the next episode, but I do highly recommend. Right, a quick word of thanks. I did mention in the last episode I had a PayPal account. Uh, if anybody wanted to, to help because uh, I'm looking to cover my costs and I, I want to personally thank Rick, John and Christine I'm happy to credit their full name but I have no way of, of checking for worth checking before I do that in case they don't want their full name given out so if you do get, let me know and I'm happy to credit you in a future episode for giving donations it's very generous of you all really appreciate it and also Roland Smith which is either his real name or I will expect a follow up donation from Kurt Horsable some point soon uh, I do appreciate it it's, it's a weight off my mind to know I can cover costs for a month or two because if you're making cuts trying to save money you look at the non-essential stuff and as much as I love doing this podcast it would fall under the non-essential category so it is one less thing to worry about and I appreciate that and I appreciate all the comments and, and despite you listen you listen to the podcast so thank you to everyone so um, I do have a PayPal account I hate doing the hard sell thing, but etisography um, at gmail.com. So if you want to just send an email on certain, you know, play something nice, that'd be great. Or just, just listen, it's all great. So we're going to play one of Martin's demos to end. He's incredibly prolific if you listen to his podcast. But I have to go back to Babs and Time Machine. I just love this song so much. Um, to me, this is a quintessential etisography track. I assume if you listen to the podcast, you will, you will love this as well. And, and this version could only be an 80s track. And it also proves that the right version is always there waiting, but also proves you cannot destroy a great melody. Uh, I did a, on, on the We Built the City Anatomy of a Song episode, I, at the very end of the episode, I put a kind of joke version called We Poopy Shitty that I found. That means my son greatly, but the point is it's still sounding great because the melody is so strong. And it's the same with this tune. The Secret Heart versions by Tight Fit and The Monkeys are both great. They're great pop songs because the melody is so good. But this version just nails it. This is just a perfect track. So I'm going to end with this. And yeah, and I'll join you again soon in part two. Until then, adios amigos.
me. That's the string line going down at the end of the chorus. So the bit underneath, that's you, is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great version, isn't it, Martin? Yeah, that sounds good. That's a good track. Yeah. <laughs> and that's me with the high synthesizer, all the, all the, the, the height going up high. And that's us screaming with his girlfriend. Yeah. What a version. Yeah, and if you if it, the other versions are going on the end there, the low bass note and all the creepy creepy sounds, but also on the version you sent me for, uh, last time, yes. the track that uh, that has the a fade with the, all my effects on as well on the end. The kind of, kind of dreamy kind of, ooh, that kind of that's stuff. it that's me going ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah, that's doing, a, doing a kind of hampshire yodel there yeah i may have stumbled but i never lost my way Contract the buttocks tight 